Welcome to episode 77 of The First 40 Miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. You're a pro at this. <laughs> Thanks. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Josh Legler. And I'm just along for the ride today. I'm Heather Legler, and this is The First 40 miles. Today on the first 40 miles, click the photography gear episode. We can't provide you with stunning scenery, but we can help you incorporate photography into your backpacking adventures. Today, we focus on gear that can support your photography habit. Then, on today's backpack hack of the week, a simple piece of string that can help stabilize your camera. And we'll wrap up this show with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Ansel Adams. All this, and that's about it. Today on the first 40 miles. Not bad. Thanks. <laughs> We're switching things around a little bit today because photography is Josh's hobby. He is the designated family photographer. And as you've probably noticed on a lot of episodes, Josh is the one who nerds out about things when we talk about denier or chlorine dioxide. He's the one that provides all the details and uh, really gets into it. And today it's about shutter speeds, apertures, and ISO, and all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, so I'm just going to walk over here and take a nap. I mean, <laughs> no, it's not going to be a boring episode. I didn't mean it like that. I meant that... I'm not going to have a lot to contribute other than maybe little side comments like, hey, that's a great idea. I like that, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Heather's usually the one that prepares all of our show outlines before we record, and she hands it to me uh, maybe the day before we record, and I jot down a few notes and chime in along the way, kind of, uh, I don't know, I'm just kind of the... Uh, the sidekick. Oh, you're not. You're way more than that. <laughs> well, this time, Heather still prepared the show notes <laughs> for this episode, <laughs> but uh, I, I was a lot more involved in preparing the show notes this time because I love photography and I have a lot of fun with it when we're out backpacking. Well, way back in episode five, we talked about the mantra, pick any two, that when it comes to backpacking gear, you can't have it all. You have to pick between price, weight, and features. And you can only have two. And that mantra has been really evident in photography gear choices, um, especially as we go backpacking. I'm not a pro photographer, but I've always been interested in photography and enjoyed it. And I've had quite a few cameras over the years. My first camera was a little Kodak point-and-shoot that I took on my first 30-mile backpacking trip as a 12-year-old Boy Scout. And I took a, an entire roll of pictures on 35 millimeter film on that trip. And I've actually used pictures from that trip as episode images for the show. And a few years later, as a teenager, I decided to get a, an SLR camera. It was a Minolta. And those two cameras together did me for quite a few years. I used the, the Minolta when I really wanted to do some creative photography. But I kept the Kodak because it could fit in my pocket and I could take it anywhere. And then we finally got our first digital camera. That was an Olympus um, in 2002, I think it was. Entered the world of digital photography. It was back in the day when everyone kind of debated whether digital or analog would be better. Today, there's no question. Digital photography has far surpassed analog photography, at least 35 millimeter stuff. And then over the years, we 
you know, every couple of years, it seems like we've upgraded our digital camera. And a couple of years ago, I decided, you know, I want to upgrade to a camera that has manual control. I still want it to be point and shoot. I want it to be small. So I found a Nikon Coolpix S9700. And it has manual controls, so I can manually adjust the shutter speed and the aperture. And that was a nice step up in my photography gear, but it really had a limited range. So the aperture, for example, I could, I could adjust the aperture from about 4 to about 8, which is just not much of a range. If you want to do one of those shots of a stream where the water is all smoothed out, then with an aperture range of 4 to 8, you have to be taking that picture on a really dark day in order to get the right shutter speed. So it was nice, but it wasn't as nice as I thought it would be. And then I'd say over the last six months or so, I've been looking at photos that I took with the camera and I've been disappointed with the fuzziness or the out of focus edges. So like the center of the photo might be clear, but when you get out to the edge, it's fuzzy, blurry, out of focus. And I thought, oh, my camera, you know, something's going wrong with my camera. And it took me a while to realize it wasn't that something was going wrong with my camera. It's that my standards are changing. I went back and looked at older pictures that I've taken with this camera and other cameras and noticed the same thing. The edges of the photos are a little bit blurred and out of focus. It's just that now since we've been doing this podcast, we put full HD photos on our website for episode images. And when you get the photos up to that size on a computer screen, you start to notice the fuzziness on the edges that I never noticed before. So it left me wanting more. <laughs> Which is, which is, doesn't that describe every photographer? That's funny because I've never noticed the out of focus edges. Nobody else noticed them. I mean, maybe other photographers did, but um, yeah, it is kind of funny. We've, we've talked about this. Josh and I have talked about it a lot and a camera is not a small purchase. And so we'll be having an episode coming up where we'll talk about how to include your spouse in making large purchases, because I think Josh did some really important things as we moved forward with this camera purchase that helped me feel a lot better about it. So as I was getting ready to purchase yet another camera uh, a few months ago, I had to decide what were the most important criteria to me. So I think right at the top of my list was great image quality. I wanted images that were sharp, clear, not grainy, that's not just an issue of how many megapixels. You know, you can't just say, oh, 20 megapixels, that's going to be a higher quality image. Well, that's what everyone thinks. They're all impressed by the megapixels number. Right. And that's only part of the equation, because if you're squeezing 20 megapixels out of a tiny sensor, then it's going to be grainy anyway. And it's not going to perform well in low light conditions, because there's just not a big enough sensor to pick up enough light. And so sensor size is critical to image quality. Here's a few examples of the difference in sensor size. You can buy a digital SLR or DSLR camera that's called a full frame camera. That means it has a sensor that's physically the same size as a 35 millimeter roll of film. So that sensor has an area of 860 square millimeters. Now, most DSLRs use a format called APS-C, a little bit smaller. It has an area of 370 square millimeters, so it's less than half of the area. They still provide great image quality. Now, if you go down to a point-and-shoot camera, it has a sensor that is only 28 square millimeters. So, in other words, it's less than one-tenth of the area 
of a sensor in a DSLR. Then go down to your smartphone and you're probably getting about 17 square millimeters. So when it comes to image size, there's a huge difference between 17 square millimeters in your smartphone and 370 square millimeters in a mid-range DSLR camera. That's where the difference in image quality comes from. So sensor size is critical to image quality. I also wanted full manual controls. So I wanted to be able to manually control both the aperture and the shutter speed. Now, some other features didn't matter to me. I didn't care if I had a hot shoe on top or super zoom. I was willing to give up super zoom to just have a, a kind of a moderate zoom range. Uh, I didn't need an optical viewfinder and I didn't care about interchangeable lenses or Wi-Fi or the ability to connect to my smartphone. But the other key criterion that I had was that it had to be small and pocketable. I had to be able to fit it in that little pouch on the hip belt of my Deuter pack or in my pants pocket. And that was a key criterion for me. So I was going for great image quality, full manual controls for the features, and I was going for small and pocketable for weight, which means I had to be flexible on price. And by flexible, what do you mean flexible? Well, for example, um, you can buy a full-size DSLR camera for probably $500, and it will have all of the features that I mentioned, even the ones that are not important to me. And then if you want a camera that's smaller than that, you'll have to pay more. And so it's kind of funny because, yeah, if size doesn't matter, just go buy a full-size DSLR. It'll have all the features, and you won't have to pay all that much. But if you want it to be small, it's a different story. What are the different kinds of cameras that people would run into out there? Well, starting out, you have smartphone cameras. And as far as cost goes, it's probably free because you already have your smartphone and you bought it for other reasons. Um, so those are kind of at the bottom end in terms of image quality. Then you have point-and-shoot cameras. Those are the ones that can fit in your pocket. They mostly do all the work for you. Um, but there's a few high-end point-and-shoots that have manual controls. And then at the top end, you have DSLR cameras, digital single lens reflex cameras. And those are the big guys that people wear around their necks that have all the features and capabilities, but they're big and heavy. Now, right in between point and shoots and DSLRs is a growing category of camera called mirrorless cameras. The Sony Alpha series is the most popular of this uh, series. These are smaller than DSLRs, but they still have interchangeable lenses like DSLRs. And then maybe I'll mention one other. Uh, Sony has come out with something they call a lens-style camera. It looks like it is just a lens that would go onto a camera, but instead it connects wirelessly to your smartphone, and you use your smartphone as the viewfinder for this lens. It looks kind of weird, but hey, it, it might float someone's boat. Well, as in every family purchase that we've made, Josh is extremely thorough with his research. I mean, everything from refrigerators to even before we moved to Oregon, we researched it a ton. And I think if Google had been more of a thing when we got married, you may have researched me before <laughs> we got married. <laughs> but I think Josh really put a lot into... Uh, into this purchase. And it was really fun to watch the process of you learning about these different technologies and features that are in cameras. Oh, I learned so much as I was researching our most recent camera purchase. And in just a few minutes, we'll tell you uh, what camera we went with 
in the Summit Gear Review. Well, for today's top five list, we're going to be talking about the top five supporting gear needs of every photographer. So this is the peripheral gear that goes along with the camera. So these are stability, carrying, charging, photo editing, and photo storage. So for stability, you need something to set your camera on so that you can take pictures. This is important either because you want to be in the picture or because you're going to have a really slow shutter speed. So next month in the Click 2.0 Photography Technique episode, we will be reviewing the ZipShot Mini Tripod, which is made by Tamarack. They're a well-known brand in cameras. It's a nice lightweight tripod that folds up quickly and sets up extremely quickly when you're ready to take a picture. But the tripod that I bring on every single trip is my MicroFlex tripod. And it's not a brand name. I mean, it's just a Google search. You just search it on Google or on Amazon, and it's a type of tripod that's maybe five inches tall and has really bendy, flexible legs and is heavy on the top so it can counterbalance the weight of your camera so it won't just tip over. And it has kind of grippy feet. Right. So it's super tiny, but it's just enough to get my camera up off the ground and stabilized somewhere. And that goes on every trip with me. They're like two bucks on Amazon. Or if you want to outfit your entire hiking group with uh, these MicroFlex tripods, we noticed a deal on Amazon where you can get, what is it, five for six dollars? Yeah, they're super (laughs) cheap. Yeah. But they do the trick. The next supporting gear need of every photographer is carrying. Now, Josh prefers the low-cost, minimalist route for a lot of things, and this includes camera storage. So he typically keeps his camera in a quart-sized Ziploc bag, and that's a great approach. But there are other options out there, especially if you are a dedicated nature photographer. There are some really high-end options for toting around your gear. The one that I wanted to point out was the MindShift Rotation 180 Professional 36 liter. Now it's not a huge pack. You're gonna have room for your DSLR and some lenses and some snacks and a change of clothes and maybe a sleeping bag, maybe not a tent. It's not a huge pack. You're gonna have to get creative with uh, how you fit things in there. So maybe maybe it's big enough for a weekend trip. But um, the really cool thing about the Rotation 180 is that the hip belt on the pack is attached to a pouch in the back. And that pouch in the back is what holds your camera. So you can just swing out the entire pouch, kind of it, it rotates around your body so that you can pull out your camera. It makes it so convenient to just twist it around, take the shot that you need to, and then it twists right back. So it really makes photography a seamless part of the trail. It's a really clever design, and it's one that I wish were integrated into more packs. This this rotatable belt, it's the kind of thing where you would put things like your snacks and your camera and other things. I think it's a brilliant design. Yeah, so imagine the bottom third of this pack basically rotates around to your front. And your camera stays protected, which is one of the hardest things about taking a really expensive piece of equipment out on the trail. You want it to be protected, but you want to use it a lot, but it's just in this really rough environment. So these packs are really great at protecting your gear 
and hopefully they'll come out with larger capacity packs because the pack sizes that they have right now are just kind of on the border. Like you could probably use it for a overnight trip or maybe a weekend trip if you have invested in some really compact ultralight gear, but um, these are really probably meant more for day hiking or overnight adventures. Another option for carrying your camera if you're packing a DSLR is from Peak Designs. Peak Designs makes a holster for DSLRs so you can attach it and wear it on the shoulder straps of your pack. Yeah, and the great thing about this is if you have one of those DSLRs with a long lens, it doesn't stick the lens straight out. (laughs) You wear it so the lens is pointing down. It's a really secure holster that won't make you feel nervous about having your camera out in the open. The third supporting gear need of every photographer is charging. And I think every photographer has a tragic story about when they went out on a trip and it was so beautiful and their camera battery drained and they didn't have a backup and they didn't have a way to charge it. And Josh, I can see the tears trickling down your cheeks right now. Tell us your story. Our Mount Hood trip, we started on Monday morning and by Wednesday morning, our camera battery was dead. And the only thing that made us feel a little bit okay about that was that we were traveling with some incredible photographers that captured the rest of the trip. They did, but I'm so disappointed that I didn't get pictures of things like Elliot Wash or the storm that came through on Gnarl Ridge. Mm. I felt like I missed so much with the camera. Got it with my eyes, got it in my mind, but not with the camera. Yeah, and even though we did have other photographers on that trip, every photographer has a different eye, and they capture things in a different way. And we got together after the trip, and everyone shared their photos. And it was just so great to see what everyone saw through their camera lens. So charging, for me, is an unsolved issue. It's still a challenge. We've been using a couple things. We've been using the Enerplex Solar Kicker IV Charger. And we've also been using an Enerplex battery pack. We've taken it to challenging situations here in the Pacific Northwest where the sun doesn't shine all the time. Uh, The Redwoods and then last month on our trip to the Rogue River. And the rule of thumb we came up with on this charger was that if you can't see your shadow, you're not going to get an ounce of electricity out of that charger. On days where we could barely see our shadow, then it was starting to put out enough power to charge a cell phone and to charge, maybe charge a camera. We were getting about 0.25 amps. Now, a regular charger that you plug into your wall is probably an amp. So that means it's going to take four times as long to charge your cell phone on this uh, charger uh, or to charge your camera. In direct sun, where it was like really bright, we were getting 0.6 amps. The charger is rated for up to 1.2 amps. We've never seen 1.2 amps out of the charger. So it's helpful in bright sun, but I, I, I think I haven't come up with a verdict yet. We haven't tested enough solar to really say whether other brands perform better, but maybe for us living in the Northwest, maybe solar isn't the option. Maybe that's not the best option. We used the Enerplex Jumper Stack 6 battery pack on our last trip when we went out to the Rogue River with our family. And we charged my daughter's phone. We charged my phone. Um, I think we recharged the camera that the boys were using. So we got some good charges out of it. And then we plugged it into the solar charger and tried to give it some more juice that way. But we always kind of felt like we were running out of battery on that trip. 
I wish there were some way that we could feel more secure and confident so that we could use our devices in a meaningful way outdoors. It's like water in the desert where you might have enough, but you're not sure and you just feel nervous uh, that you're going to run out. And I guess if you're in the desert, then electricity is not a problem, right? With a solar panel. I guess so. <laughs> so pick, pick your worry. Do you want to okay. worry about electricity or about water? Uh, in Oregon, we never worry about water. The number four supporting gear need of every photographer is photo editing. No matter how great of a photographer you are, there's always some post-shot tweaking that goes on. The most well-known product out there is Adobe Photoshop. Uh, they also have uh, Adobe Photoshop Elements, which is a stripped-down version of Photoshop that costs less, probably more appropriate for amateurs. I just use GIMP. It's a free open-source photo editing software. It has a little bit of a learning curve to figure out how to work it, but I kind of know my way around the common things that I do to every photo, like doing a white balance on it, or cropping it, or resizing it. And then the last supporting gear need of every photographer would be an SD card or a photo storage card. Our current camera has a 4 gigabyte SD card in it, and at a 20 megapixel fine JPEG quality setting, it can hold about 266 photos on the card. It's usually enough for me. I'm not exceedingly trigger happy with my camera. Oh, I am. When I used your camera on the trip, I saw that butterfly that landed on your shoe. I took like 30 pictures of it because I wanted to get just the right angle. I didn't want to scare it away. So I don't know. I, I like the idea of having a few more pictures just in case. We got lots of butterfly shots. Yes, right. we did. <laughs> Well, um, some cameras can shoot in a format called RAW. And, you know, JPEG is a format that compresses the photo and it loses some of the original information from the photo in order to do that. And RAW does not. It's just a recording of exactly what the sensors picked up in the camera. So it's much larger than JPEGs. So if we set our camera to RAW format, we only get 136 shots on our 4 gig card. So it's a trade-off uh, between quality and how many shots you can store on that card. Let me just mention as well, um, SD cards also have a rating for their speed, which is how quickly the data can be written to the card after a picture is taken. And so if you have a highly capable camera, you want to make sure that you get a card to match. So for SD cards, that's called the speed class, and uh, class 10 is the fastest as of 2016. Well, really, we just scratched the surface on, I mean, everything today. And if our first 40 milers had been with us for lunch over the last few weeks, they would have gotten the in-depth, full explanation of all of these things. Because <laughs> I feel like I've kind of learned, you know, as we've had lunch together each day, Josh, a little bit extra. Hey, you're still awake. You didn't <laughs> fall asleep. That's good. Yes. And we're not done nerding out today. We're finally going to tell you what camera we bought. We will be reviewing the Sony RX100. Sony calls it the Professionals Compact Camera. And I think that says it all. So as far as structure goes, the Sony RX100 has an ultra-slim aluminum body, and Sony claims it's sophisticated. Yeah. It's just, it's not as bulky as a DSLR, so it's small enough that you could fit in your little hip belt pouch. It has a 3-inch LCD screen with 1.2 million pixels. It has a rear control dial, 
and a customizable front control ring. Most point-and-shoot cameras have a rear control dial. That's just where the menu buttons are, and you can, you know, spin it around to control different things. But what's unique, and just a few cameras have this in the point-and-shoot category, is the ring around the lens on the front of the camera that can be rotated. And using the menu, you can decide what you want that ring to do. It can be your zoom ring. It can change the shutter speed, the aperture, the ISO. It can be the manual focus ring, anything you want it to be. For utility, the Sony RX100 has a one-inch sensor. And that was one of the important criteria that I had for image quality. So a standard point-and-shoot camera has a sensor that has a diagonal measurement of between a third of an inch and a half of an inch, whereas this one has a diagonal measurement of one inch. So it ends up being like four times as much sensor area, and that's where you get the better image quality. It has a zoom lens from 28 millimeters to 100 millimeters equivalent, which is almost a 4x zoom, and that's something I had to compromise on a little bit. Our previous camera, the Nikon, had a 30x zoom. But the problem was, when I was all the way zoomed in at 30x, I was getting a lot of distortion from the lens. And so it's like, yeah, it was zoomed in, but I wasn't getting the image quality that I wanted. So with the Sony RX100, I feel like I get great image quality all the way through the zoom range from 28 to 100 millimeters. It has an aperture that opens up all the way to 1.8 and then closes down all the way to 11. This was also really important to me. As I mentioned before, my Nikon only went from an aperture of 4 to 8, which wasn't much. With an aperture of 1.8, that's a huge aperture. It lets in a lot of light, which means this does much better in low-light conditions. And then with an aperture of 11, it means I can dial it down for a couple purposes. One, if I want to have a really slow shutter speed and it's daytime, then I can dial down that aperture to a tiny size of 11 and have a long shutter speed. Or I can dial it down to 11 because I want to have everything in the photo be in focus. And that's important with landscape photos, where you want the mountains in the distance and the flowers a couple feet in front of your camera to all be in focus. The camera shoots up to 10 frames per second on photos, which is really fun when I'm trying to get shots of the kids doing something goofy, because I can just hold down the button get 10 frames per second, and then pick the frames that came out the best. It has an ISO range from 80 to 6400. ISO is a measure of how sensitive the camera is to light. And so you want to be able to go to a low ISO if you want the camera to be less sensitive to light. So you're taking photos in bright light, or you want to have a really slow shutter speed or a large aperture. And then at the other end, you want a high ISO so that it can be really sensitive to light. And that's important, for example, in low light conditions where you take a picture and you know how everything's blurry because everyone's moving. Well, with a high sensitivity, a high ISO, then you can still keep a fast shutter speed and take that picture. The trade-off is the higher you go in the ISO, the more grainy your photo will be. And the Sony RX100 really does crystal clear photos um, up to ISO maybe 400, 800, somewhere in there, and then you'll start to see the graininess creep in. The RX100 takes uh, 1080p HD video. It has something called steady shot image stabilization, and I've experienced this effect when I just take pictures in full automatic mode. Sometimes it'll take two shots when I push the shutter button, 
and then it will compare the two shots or somehow it'll create one image out of the two shots that it took and so you don't get all the blurriness. And finally it has full manual control capabilities so I can do shutter priority, aperture priority, or I can adjust both the shutter speed and the aperture manually while adjusting the ISO manually. I've even played around with the manual focus control. And I will say it's pretty tough to tell what you're doing when you do full manual focus on this. So if you're looking for full manual focus, you probably need to go with a, a DSLR. As far as mass goes, this weighs 8.4 ounces. And I'm kind of curious what a traditional DSLR weighs. It seems like they're up in the 8.4 pound range. <laughs> Those can be heavy to lug around. Well, you've got the weight of the camera, and then you've got the weight of the lens. Yeah. Or multiple lenses in order to get all the flexibility that you want. Yeah, you have to be pretty dedicated. This camera is four inches wide, two and a fourth inches tall, and one and a half inches wide. Yeah, the body of the camera is about an inch, and then there's another half inch where the lens and the control ring kind of protrude out the front compactness and the ability to put it in my pocket, as I said, was one of my top priorities. And I was really pleased when this camera came and I discovered that it was actually even smaller, a little bit, than the Nikon that I was replacing. So as far as maintenance, how many shots were you getting on a battery? It's been rated for, I think, 230 shots per battery charge. And they have like a standard routine that they run through to get that rating. So in real life experience, I always hesitate to drain the battery all the way because then I know that the perfect photo opportunity is going to come up and I'm going to miss mm -hmm. it. Um, but I was watching the battery life and I was getting over 200 photos on a charge. And this was pretty heavy usage. This was doing 30 second time lapse photos, uh, doing lots of other creative stuff with the camera. And I was still getting in that, you know, getting upwards of 200 photos per charge. All right, Josh, the question we've all been wondering, how much does this thing of beauty cost? Right, that's what I said I had to be flexible on. The RX100 comes in four models. There's the original RX100, and then there's two, three, and four. And the price increases with features. The base model RX100 has a retail price of $500, and that's the one I bought um, you can find it uh, easily for 400 The RX100 Model 2 is $650, the Model 3 is $800, and the Model 4 is $950. Now what are you getting for the extra price? Additional features. And these were things like the hot shoe and the Wi-Fi connectivity and other features that I mentioned just weren't important enough for me to justify the extra cost. So as far as trial goes, Josh, you really put this camera through its paces on our Rogue River trip. Well, first of all, when the camera first came in the mail, I pulled it out and I set our existing Nikon camera onto its best quality settings and took a picture across um, to the far wall of our family room. And then I set the Sony to the same quality settings, you know, ISO, shutter speed, aperture, as I had set the Nikon and took the same picture. And then I zoomed in on a clock that was on the wall across the family room and the difference was totally amazing to me. So I've been excited to take this out on a backpacking trip and finally got to do that when we went to the Rogue River. And I put it through some pretty challenging uh, situations. I was doing quick shots of the family on the trail. So this is the kind of thing where you're hiking along and you're like, ooh, that looks cool. And you have about a half second to pull your camera out of your um, hip belt, turn it on, 
and push the button and hope that it focuses and gets the shot right. You know, all within just a half second or a second. And I was pretty pleased with uh, the results that I got. I also tried night shots, which I couldn't do with any of my previous cameras except for that Minolta SLR that I had years ago. And again, it was really fun to go out after dark, set the camera on a tripod, and set like a 30-second exposure and see a picture of stars. And I think it's so amazing because you see things that you can't see with your own eyes. There's just so many stars in the sky. It's so cool. I also tried water shots where you do like a half second exposure so that the water looks all soft. And for some of those shots, I was just bracing the camera against a bridge or a tree and got some great results. And I also took shots in challenging lighting where the sun was in front of me or there were dark shadows over part of the picture. And it has a capability built into it that will compensate for those extreme contrast situations. There was one limitation that I ran to as well as kind of a gotcha. The limitation was when I was trying to focus on small close-up things. So taking a picture of a small flower that was maybe just one inch in diameter and just a couple inches away from the camera, the camera had trouble focusing on that. It would usually focus on the background. And so I would have to put my hand up next to the flower to get the focus and then take my hand away and take the picture. But that affects the exposure setting of the shot. And then the gotcha that I ran into is when you set this on self-timer, like a 10-second self-timer, It remembers that setting after you turn the camera off and back on. So, you know, I set it up for a timer shot of the family. We get this great shot. And then an hour later, I pull the camera out to take a quick shot on the trail. You know, and I pull it up, push the button, and then I wait 10 seconds. (laughs) And it finally takes the picture. So I know I'll get used to that, but that has gotten me several times already. Do you have a favorite shot that you took on the trail on this last trip? From the shots we shared on Facebook and Twitter, the shot of Whiskey Creek, I think, has been the most popular. And I do love that shot. But my other favorite is the night shot that I took, where Jupiter is just so bright in the sky, and then with all these other stars around it. So I feel like the Sony RX100 has taken my photography to the next level. But I think it's also important to point out that the best camera is the one that you have with you. So whether it's a really great DSLR or it's just your smartphone, just capturing the moment is what's important. And our episode on June 7th will be Click 2.0, the photography technique episode. And so whether you've got a smartphone or a DSLR, we're going to run through techniques that you can use to take better pictures when you're backpacking. For today's backpack hack of the week, a string pod. A string pod is a string that you loop over your camera and then let the other end dangle down to the ground and you step on that end. And what it does is it reduces the shakiness that comes from just holding your camera in midair. It's like a tripod, except made of string. It's not the perfect solution, but that's kind of the nature of hacks. You're just kind of doing the best with what you've got. So you take a piece of rope or string, you tie it in a loop, and you slide your camera or phone into that loop. You step on the other end of the string on the ground, and you pull up against the string. So this resistance that the string is providing is what helps to provide a little bit of stability to your shot. Not a lot, 
But I tried it out with a half-second shutter speed, and it made a difference compared to just holding the camera without the string tension. Yeah, and it's such a simple hack with gear that you already have in your pack. And with a smartphone, this may be the only option because they don't have that little thing in the bottom where you can attach a tripod. So to make the string pod, tie a fixed loop in one end of the string so that you kind of have this loop that you can always use, or you can make it adjustable by making a bite in the end of the string, and then loop the rest of the string into that bite and pull tight. And you're going to make kind of a, a noose type thing or an adjustable loop that you can put over your phone or your camera. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Ansel Adams. He said to the complaint, there are no people in these photographs. I respond, there are always two people, the photographer and the viewer. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this podcast, then take an outdoor shot and share it with us on Facebook or Twitter. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. This is requiring a lot of brain power. <laughs> peak divine. Peak divines. Divine. <laughs> With 1.2 millimeter dots. 1.2 million. Million. <laughs> I'm just reading what we wrote. A selfie stick. Ah, uh, yeah. Those are great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true photographer, Josh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>